Hi, I'm Erica Keswin. Welcome to Left to Our Own Devices, a show that explores how to bring our human to work and to life. Because left to our own devices, we're not connecting. Today, we have two amazing guests with us that are going to talk about health and wellness and the importance of thinking about health and wellness as it relates to leading in the hybrid revolution. So first, we have Jennifer Fisher. Jennifer is the Chief Well-Being Officer at Deloitte, where she drives the strategy and innovation around work life, health, and wellness. Jennifer frequently speaks and writes about building a culture of well-being at work and serves as the work-life integration editor-at-large for Thrive Global. She is also the host of her own podcast, which I had the pleasure of being on, called Work Well, which is a series that focuses on the latest work-life trends. And she is an author of a very recently released book called Work Better Together, How to Cultivate Strong Relationships to Maximize Well-Being and Boost bottom lines. Our second guest is Karen Ehrenfeld. Karen is a managing director in global capital markets at Morgan Stanley, and she's been at the firm for almost two decades. Karen began her career as a summer intern in Morgan Stanley's Toronto offices. As a head of healthcare and transportation debt capital markets, she's responsible for advising clients on a multitude of capital structure topics with a focus on originating and structuring investment grade financing. So you might be wondering what that has to do with a focus on wellness. Well, during her time on Wall Street, Karen has developed a passion for topics such as wellness in the workplace and how it's connected to career longevity for young professionals, as well as work-life integration and retention of women and people with diverse backgrounds. She has spearheaded several programs at Morgan Stanley and has spoken out on these topics on many occasions. Karen has an honors in business administration degree from the Richard Ivey School of Business in London, Ontario, and currently resides in New York with her husband and two sons, where we sometimes meet and go for walks in the park, which is something critical to my own wellness. I'm really excited today for this episode and having two leaders to talk about wellness in two industries that we don't often associate with wellness, consulting and banking. Welcome to the show. Okay, excited about today's episode. Welcome, Karen and Jen, to the show. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Great, really exciting. I think wellness, mental health, physical health is something that is on everybody's mind as we think about the hybrid revolution. And I was in preparing for today, you know, I come from a consulting background. So here I have two amazing women, you know, one in banking, one in consulting. And many people would probably say to me, well, that's interesting. Isn't wellness an oxymoron as it relates to the business and the consulting industries? So I I surely hope not, or I think we're moving in another direction. So I want to kick it off by just asking, you know, both of you how you think about wellness at work. And and Jen, I'll start with you. I mean, what do you actually do in your role of chief wellness officer at Deloitte? Yeah, it's a question that I get quite often. And you're right. I think historically speaking, you know, the accounting, consulting, financial services industry isn't one that has been incredibly well known for its <laughs> prowess when it comes to wellness and, and well-being. But that certainly is something that I see is changing. I think as with many industries, the pandemic and many things that the pandemic has accelerated, it's 
you know, the focus on on workforce well-being. It's something that has certainly landed on the desk of most, if not all, C-suite executives during, mm-hmm. you know, the last 14, 15 months. You know, but I've been in, in my role for over five years now. And so I think Deloitte was really an early adopter, perhaps in in many ways of of workforce well-being. And certainly it has evolved over those five years. But the way that that we look at it is really if we if we rewind, you know, five years, there were lots of programs and benefits that were, you know, focused on our physical health, you know, programs around, you know, work-life balance or work-life fit, you know, and ways to kind of dial up or dial down in your career in terms of you know, working reduced work schedules. And I think for mm-hmm. us, it was, you know, taking a step back that at that time, the way the way we were working, <laughs> interestingly, was shifting so much, right? I mean, it was really the initial days of like, okay, a lot of people aren't going into the office anymore. Right. And remote work in a way or flexible work was kind of just beginning, even though it's nothing compared to where it is today, right? But, you know, people, because of technology, people you know, and, and how we had adopted it into almost every aspect of our life, people were getting more and more comfortable in working in, in kind of remote locations. And we were starting to see the early days of, of the positive and negative impacts of those. And so our commitment at the time was really to say, okay, we need to step back. It's no longer just about kind of flexible work or physical health and subsidizing gym, gym memberships, but how can we help our people really excel and be their best in their whole life. You know, there was so much research coming out at the time that, you know, I mean, you you can you can't separate what happens at work and what happens at home. And so the the whole notion of work-life balance, especially for someone like me who is kind of a type A high performer, I was always like literally trying to balance them. <laughs> you know, I was looking for this 50-50 and I always felt like I was failing. And I was like, this work-life balance stuff, it, like it it doesn't work. You know, and that's when I started to really kind of get excited about the whole notion of of work-life integration and work-life design mm-hmm. and designing, you know, work that that fits into the life that I want to live and not thinking about it as a, you know, kind of an either or or a balance, right? right? That over time, you know, if, you know, there's going to be times certainly in our careers where we give more to work and there's going to be times certainly in our careers where we give more to life. And as long as it's a rhythm over time, it doesn't have to be balanced. <laughs> and that right. just really resonated with me. And then looking at whole person, right? I mean, for so long, we never talked about mental health, right? We just believed that, you know, our our brains and our bodies were disconnected in some way, right? We just, you know, <laughs> it, it, or, or that, you know, it was on, the only thing connecting our brains and our body perhaps was our neck. I heard somebody say that, you know, the only thing that, so, so it's just, you know, we, we really broadened the view of what all, you know, whole person health and well-being is right. and what it takes right. for somebody to show up and be at their best. And so we look at it as, you know, body, mind, purpose, and financial health. Those are kind of the All four right. pillars. All right. Well, I want to get into <laughs> yeah. some of those, yeah. the, the prescriptions as well. So Karen, you know, you have an interesting take on this as well. Your focus on wellness is in addition to your day job in, in debt capital markets, maybe sort of a wellness side hustle, if you will. How do you think about wellness at work, both for you and for your team? Yeah. And I, you know, I would echo a lot of what Jen just said before, around how to think about balance, right? It all sort of starts with there and, you know, what's your own personal definition of, of wellness? Because I think one, one thing we don't get right a lot of the times is 
putting words in people's mouth about what that means to them. And, and it really means different things to different people. So that's, I think that's the biggest difficulty for corporates and companies who are putting in, you know, policies into place, sort of sweeping assumptions around, you know, what, what defines wellness. It's, it is quite different. So one thing that we talk a lot about here is, you know, how do you think about wellness and how, how do you create a personal balance sheet, if you will, <laughs> we're in finance, so I'm going to use a great right, analogy for go. finance, but how do you, how do you balance your personal balance sheet, right? If you, if anyone who's listening has been in finance and ever, ever modeled a financial model before, it's really tough to get the balance sheet to balance. And frankly, as your company or your, your human self grows and more inputs, right? More pressures get involved it's even more difficult you know to balance your balance sheet so the the whole goal and philosophy that you know i and I, and i think the firm in general is trying to impart is look you've got assets you've got liabilities on both sides we try to have them feel comfortable and balanced and as close as possible together but frankly you know what life is is having both as part of the equation and so you know if you think about different liabilities like debt that goes on the balance sheet you know, it's like vegetables, like no, no one wants to, to, to do the tough stuff, right? Or the hard stuff, which isn't, you know, quote unquote, what society defines. It's fun. Like building a career and investing in your career is really hard mm-hmm. sometimes. But you know that that debt or that liability, you know, ultimately helps the company grow, right? Helps you grow as a human. And so the philosophy that we sort of take is, look, you know, of course, there's hard work. And like Jen said, of course, there's going to be times where you have to give more to work and then you pull back. It's that, ba- that constant ebb and flow, you know, of that balance sheet. But I've always thought about life that way and thought about, you know, how do I, how do I be intentional about placing my debits and credits, you know, in that balance sheet so that ultimately my demands don't exceed my capacity, right? Because it's when, you're, when your demands exceed your capacity is when you hit the burnout level. And that's the thing that we're just trying to avoid. And that looks different for everyone. Yeah, 100%. So just to follow up on that, Karen, you you talked recently, I heard you what you're talking about in those moments where you can focus on yourself, you were calling them these, these flexible moments. And it was around what do you do in those flexible moments that can help you with your burnout? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we can actually apply some more science around how to think about burnout and therefore the strategies to help alleviate it, not necessarily completely solve it. You know, and again, whether you call it burnout or just exhaustion or going through a phase, you know, what, whatever it is, we're all going to go through it. So I think it's really important that people who have day jobs like myself, you know, and, and everyone else have these tools at their hands because we all know that at the end of the day, the best relationships and employee happiness really depends on who your manager is. So if we're not resourcing people properly with the tools, then it's it's tough, right? Because that's not really your day job or what you're what you're even thinking about, even if it's unintentional, right? And how you're mm-hmm. managing your people. So yes, taking those flexible moments is certainly one. But you know, if you know, I can sort of give you a quick idea about how I think about it. I think number one is to understand what burnout looks like is really, really important, right? Or just that 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 exhaustion. So being able to look at someone or your people or, or some folks or even have a conversation and notice when they're exhausted or losing steam or a little bit irritable, or sometimes you start hearing people be a little bit cynical, right, about their job, or people who are superstars start to lose their mojo a little bit and, and their work, you know, their work product is not as good, good as it was. 
noticing those things and instead of getting kind of annoyed or angry at it or what's their problem, it's then understanding how to have the conversation and building in some strategies that can help help the employee or help your friend or, or whoever the person might be. So once you sort of spot it, then how do you source it? How do you source the burnout? What is the real problem here? Because again, if you're making assumptions, which people sometimes just do very quick twitch that it's workload. Oh, it's the hours, right? Banking is so, such long hours. And if, yes, it is. But there's other levers that we can pull and push to help alleviate that pressure. So of course, unsustainable workload is one of them. And there's certain things that we can arm people to do, right? To, to deal with that. But there's also lack of control about how and when you work your best. And just having adjustments around, you know what? If you want to go take off for dinner and have a workout from 6 to 7.30, I've got no problem with that. I'm not even monitoring you. You know what you have to get done. And if you need to log back in, you'll log back in. Or hey, if I need you, you've got a cell phone. I don't expect you to sit and have your little green light on to see that you're sitting at your desk and available to instant chat. I'll call you. Don't worry about it. Just having that conversation around having more control can alleviate a lot of the burnout. Right. That predictable, there was a, a study out of Harvard that focused on BCG and it talked about the importance of having you know, predictable time off, just, just certain things that are in your control. So I, I wanted you to share that because I do think both in consulting and banking, so many times we just think it's about the number of hours worked. And I, and I think it's much more than that. Um, you also mentioned, and I want to turn to Jen on this one, the, the, the relationship with your manager. And I think many of us have seen the studies, nine out of 10 people leave companies because of their manager. Um, and Jen, you share a really pivotal moment in your new book, which for the record is called Work Better Together. And it is coming out on June 29th, just a couple of weeks. I'm so excited to get my hands on it. Um, can you talk about or share that pivotal moment and, and the impact that managers can have on wellness at work? Absolutely. So I assume my, there's a lot of pivotal moments, I think, in that book, but I think you're talking about the one at the very beginning where I talk about the why, you know, why it was important for me to write the book yes. and what I learned as a, as a manager. And it was, you know, very early on in my career as a, as a manager of people, I, you know, was a very kind of high performing taskmaster, get it done type person. I had a belief that, you know, I would sleep when I was dead and I was living my life that way. I mean, I would, you know, pride myself on getting to the gym for an hour a day. You know, I would work or do whatever else I was doing for 20 hours and I would get three to, you know, 19, 20 hours, I'd get three to four hours of sleep. And I'm here to tell you that's not sustainable. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> and it does lead to actual real true burnout, just not feelings of exhaustion, but burnout where like you can't get out of bed or engage in life in any meaningful way. And that's my story. But I think the story that you're referring to is, you know, I had someone on my team who came and, you know, sat down in, in front of me and tell me that she accepted another role in the organization, um, that, you know, she admired me as a person and as a leader in many ways, but that she couldn't work for me. Oh, and it's like, a, it's like a punch in the gut. <laughs> yeah, it, it absolutely is. And, you know, it, you know, my reaction at the time was, was defensive, you know, it was, it, it, it did, you know, I did not have a, you know, epiphany in the moment. I did not behave in a way that was incredibly self-reflective and say, wow, I, you know, I wonder why she was doing this. It was 
okay, well, you know, she has other things going on in her life. Maybe this job is just too hard. Maybe there's just too many things. You know, I, I made it, I made it about all of these other things as opposed to, wow, why can't she work for me? And it wasn't until really after I'd been through my own burnout and started to really reflect on my life and who I wanted to be and how I wanted to show up as a as a person and a leader in the workplace and outside of the workplace that that conversation came back to me and so many light bulbs went off and and you know the light bulbs were you know at the time I you know relation you know relationships for me were transactional they were mm-hmm. about getting work done <laughs> you know i i never really took the time to get to know anybody to get to know what their you know strengths were what lit them up what energized them what was going on in their life what mattered to them what their needs were you know all of the things that we are thankfully talking about in the mm-hmm. workplace now and all the best leaders are doing i did none of that And so that moment for me when I was recovering from my own burnout was like, wow, holy cow. Like, you know, no wonder she left my team. I would have left my team too, you know, and in that moment I sent her a note and I, you know, I said, Hey, you know, I know this is, you know, 18 months too late or two years too late, but I just want you to know that, you know, I reflected on your words and what you said to me and, you know, the reasons why you left the team. And this is, this is what it means to me. And this is how I, you know, how I've let it change me and make me a better person and a better, better leader. And, and this is somebody that, you know, is, is a friend and now will be a lifelong right. friend because of, of what she taught me. But certainly in that moment, it was incredibly hard to hear. And my reaction was one of defense, not one of kind of introspection of like, wow, what am I doing wrong as a leader that is making people feel this way? Wow. Yeah, I mean, it was certainly transformative and, and amazing that you were willing to to share that, you know, in the book, so people can can learn from it. And yeah, I mean, we're all human, right? right? I mean, you know, is it a moment that I'm proud of? No, but is it, you know, is it a moment that probably most of us, in some way, shape, or form, has had? Yeah, you know, and I and I think that that's why it's so important to share. Jen, that is, first of all, I think it's awesome that you're sharing that story because I think that everyone who is a high achiever and in this type of industry has been there. You know, I I certainly have myself, right? I mean, it's only with more maturity and reflection and confidence in what I can do and produce now at this point and stage in my career that I can take a step back and really work on rectifying, you know, as as a bigger picture goal of mine, how do I make it better for others, given some of the hardships that, you know, and I, and I had it pretty good, frankly, when I, when I was junior. I mean, I was just a very high, energetic, and eager, eager person. And I had very good managers. I had others that were not so great, of course. But, but I myself, I think you're right. All of us have sort of been there in, in the high achieving, go-getter mentality. The times, times are changing. This topic is so much more relevant. And that's what spurred me a couple of years ago for me to better myself. I mean, a lot of this stems from, you know, how can I be a better manager so that when I leave my legacy, I feel good about how I grew other people, how Mm -hmm. other people felt in my presence. And in a way, it's sort of selfish, right? I mean, I want to, I want to be viewed as somebody who was fair, who cared about this stuff, who, who championed people who wanted to be champions in life and not just in work. And so for me too, Jen, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a more recent phenomenon. So Karen, on that, I mean, 
you you talked um, when we were getting ready for this call today or this podcast today that you have a survey and you survey your team to really take a pulse on how they were faring during the pandemic and and today. So can you talk about the survey? Because I think it's it's a really prescriptive, concrete way that other managers who might be listening can think about how to make sure they don't end up with an employee who ends up leaving when when you don't want them to leave. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's it sort of the idea sort of stemmed from how do you unblock the conversation with people in the least awkward way possible? <laughs> that doesn't make people uncomfortable. That doesn't sort of look like you're doing it to check the box because you have to check in. You know, people say check in with your people, make sure, make sure that they're doing okay mentally, physically. You know, how could we add a little bit more robust, again, for lack of a better term, science around it? Um, that can create the conversation and frankly, also help our people self-assess why they're feeling the way they're feeling. Because sometimes it's so hard to pinpoint, do I just not like this job? Do I just not like the person I'm working with? Do I not like this particular project? Is it the, you know, how is it that I'm, that I'm working? Or what is it about the way I'm doing the work that sits uncomfortably with me? And so that's the introspection that I've tried to get at with myself, with my team, you know, and, 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 and shared with others. And, you know, look, it's it's not really rocket science type stuff. I mean, this is stuff that's based on stuff that you've probably read or other people who are interested in this topic. So for example, you know, some of the questions, I sort of boil it down to five points, all of which try to get at what's the source of, you know, anything that we can improve. Again, whether you call it exhaustion or burnout or languishing, you know, that that feeling like things can be improved, whatever it is. So one question, it sort of starts off with, look, how are you finding the workload lately? right? Are you, mm -hmm. you energized about the work you're doing? So therefore is the workload okay? So it gets into just, you know, okay, I'm working a 12 hour day. Well, guess what? Some people for a week's project, like I've been there myself, didn't mind working that 12 hour day for, for five days straight because it was a really cool project. However, what are we doing on the back end of that project to help you rest and recover? So, which is another question, right? Mm -hmm. So talk about ROI on your effort put in. So I literally say that like, what, what is the return you feel like you're getting on the effort that you've been putting into your job? And what is it that you value in return? And I actually list a couple of things. You know, compensation, the most obvious one. Is it recognition? Is it time off strategies or rest and recovery? Is it flexibility? Because again, if you start to assume that it's one thing or the other, then we're, you know, we're making a lot of assumptions that may not make a whole lot of sense for each person. So the survey just goes into those type of questions. It even talks about, do you feel like you've got a supportive community at work? What can, and then when, if somebody says no, or they rank it low, I ask, what can we do to make that a little bit better? So in reaction to one of those things, I actually had helped spearhead a women's junior monthly meetup here at our, you know, in our division. And the idea was not to have some senior hoagie like me, you know, come in and say, well, here's what we should talk about but actually nominate four people who are junior from that group and say, hey, you think about the things that are most relevant to talk about or activities you'd like to do. And my job will be to help you facilitate that. So if you want to talk to somebody at the firm that moved out of the city and you're thinking about doing that, but how do they maneuver everything? And you know, how will that work with the commute time? I'll get you the perfect speaker for that and connect the group with that. Or 
if you want to do an activity about financial wellness, because we have a huge wealth management arm as a junior person, how do I start thinking about mm-hmm. saving? Well, I'll hook you up with that too. But you dictate what matters to you. So that's just one, for example, on community. Oh, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's making wellness personal. And I, I feel like you almost knew where I was going with, with that question. And the next question around, because you mentioned compensation, that you know we can't always assume that that compensation is the answer when we're thinking about work to make us happier, especially now. And so, Jen, you know, you reference um, Tracy Brower in your book, who's the author of Bring Work to Life by Bringing Life to Work. And she offered a bunch of predictions about our post-COVID workplace. And one of them, which I have been thinking about a lot is, I'll just, I'll read what she wrote. You know, managers and peers will have greater empathy for the demands of life outside of work, such as family responsibilities, you know, and, and the, things like that. So my question, Jen, and I'll start with you on this, but would love to get both of your thoughts is we're at this moment where people are being more empathetic, more vulnerable. We've been through such a powerful experience together, but how, how do we keep this front and center? And Jen, how do you design systems so that this empathy remains? I would say both for both at Deloitte, but also for your clients. Not an, not an easy task. So I'm, I'm curious how you're thinking about it. No, it's not an easy task. But you know, the, the way that we're looking at it and, and the way we've written about it um, in our recent Deloitte 2021 human capital trend is designing work for well-being. Mm-hmm. So actually stepping back and looking at the way that we've designed work. And in some cases, that means re-architecting work itself and how work is done and what the processes of work entail and the relationships that people have, not just with one another, which is critically important and the reason why we wrote the book Work Better Together, but the relationships that we have with the technology that we use, the relationships that we have with the physical environment that we're in, the relationships that we have with the operational processes, right? All of those things impact our well-being and how we feel about the work that we do, understanding purpose and meaning in our work and what the bigger purpose of our work is and what's the pull-through line for me as an individual and how do, how do we connect or help people connect their personal purpose to the work that they're doing is really, really important and increasingly more important in, in the world that we're living in. And, and then the other thing is, is how, you know, how do you continue to maintain the authenticity and vulnerability. I mean, I, I don't think that our workforce is going to let us go back, right? <laughs> right? I, I, I just don't, right? I mean, like so much has changed and there's such a demand societally for people to be able to show up and be who they are. And if I think about, you know, some of the, you know, the history in our workplaces, but just in society in general, I mean, the biggest impact on your well-being is not being able to show up and be who you are, not Mm -hmm. being able to show up and say what your needs are, not being able to really truly authentically, you know, as you would say, bring your human to work. Right. 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 And so it is all about, you know, how do we make, you know, work itself, you know, more human. And, And you can do that through, I mean, 
we're talking about it through behaviors and norms at the team level. And so in the human capital trend, we talk about designing work for well-being in three stages or in three in three areas in an organization. The organizational level, which is organizational programs and policies, but also leadership behaviors, which is leaders truly walking the mm-hmm. talk and demonstrating that this isn't just something that we say, but it's something that we truly do and believe. And it's something, you know, it's part of our culture. At the team level, which is kind of the, the, the money level, level, right? Like that's where it happens and at the individual level. So at the team level, it's really about behaviors and norms. How do we get together as a team? Because we know all the research shows that the people that have the biggest impact on your day-to-day well-being are the people that you spend most of your time with. And for those of us you know, that work, <laughs> the majority of our waking hours during the week are spent at work, right? And so those people that we're engaging with on a regular basis are the people that have the biggest impact on our well-being. So for most of us, that's our team. So how do we as teams get together and talk about what do we want our well-being behaviors and norms to be? What do we want standard working hours to look like? How do we get in touch with each other outside of standard working hours? What does you know, common or accepted response time to emails look like? You know, what are the expectations around that? How, what are the expectations around learning and development? What are the expectations? Do we all want to step away from our laptops at, you know, from for, for lunch every day? You know, just having those conversations and creating norms on a team so that everybody understands what what's expected of them and when it's expected and also creates a platform and an environment where I can speak up. I can say, hey, you know what? I want to go to yoga or I'm learning to knit or I'm training for a marathon or I want to go to my kids play, whatever it is, whatever your definition or need is, it creates that environment and that platform where I can speak up and ask for what I need, know that the team's going to have my back because, you know, Erica, when you speak up and you ask for what you need, I'm going to have your back, right? Mm -hmm. So it creates this reciprocal environment, which is really cool. And then of course, there's the individual, right? Every individual must have agency and feel empowered to take care of their own well-being. It, you know, we can we can do as much as we can possibly do at an organizational and team level. I cannot force you to take care of yourself. Right. You have to do that for yourself, right? And so there's always going to be, you know, self there's going to be responsibility and self-agency, but you know, the organization and the team can do a lot to really feel help people feel comfortable and empowered and and permissioned to to take care of themselves. So, I'm going to just be pushed back a little bit in that I, I think I agree with you. I think that all sounds great, but what do you do with the manager that you know you have all these norms and it sounds great and and Deloitte as an organization certainly values wellness, but do you hold these leaders accountable if they're not walking the walk? Yeah, absolutely. It's part of the the goals process. It's part of performance management. The team norms and behaviors are something that are logged and tracked. People have to report on how it's going. So it's an evolutionary process. Is it perfect? Is every team leader and every team manager at Deloitte perfect? No, because you know it's an evolving process. People are different. People are people. Yep. <laughs> and, and it takes a long time to change culture, but you have to start somewhere. And so you know, that's why we believe, you know, that's the the three-legged stool, right? Organizational team and individual and all three of those in order for it to really work need to be working together. There's one that's, that's not working. Certainly it impacts, you know, if you change teams, you could have, you could go from a, you know, a leader that is a great advocate and supporter of well-being and change to another leader that 
that not so much, right? But but there are also things that people can do. You know, if you do, if you don't have a leader that's that is that supportive, right, or that you don't feel understands it or gets it, it doesn't always have to be about the leader. Certainly, a manager has a huge impact. I'm not denying that at all. But there are other people that you work with, and are there things, are there conversations that you can start to have with your colleagues? and start a grassroots movement, right? And so then three or four or five of you go to your leader or manager and say, these are the things that matter to us. We want to spearhead this on our team, as opposed to, you know, if there is, you know, if there's some discomfort or, you know, fear about approaching your manager, because you don't think your manager believes in it, get together, you know, with others on your team and start to create that. So there, I, I do believe that there are always things that we can do. That said, if you're truly in a toxic environment and you believe there's nothing that you can do, my advice <laughs> to you as Jen Fisher would be to get yeah. out, <laughs> right? I mean, it's not worth right. it. Run, don't walk. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, but, uh, but I think there are always things that we can do and other people that we can reach out to if we don't believe that our manager, you know, gets it or understands it. Yeah. I uh, like I, I've been saying to people that I I hope that many aspects of this pandemic is in the rearview mirror, but I hope we don't forget what we saw and the level of empathy and looking into each other's living rooms and seeing what what makes us what makes us human because I think that will accelerate and support this whole discussion around wellness and whole person. And so we'll have to all have a have a reunion conversation a year from now and see. Uh, see how we would answer these same questions. So on that, I want to turn to really my last big question, which is something I ask everyone on the podcast. And it, it gets to what both of you have been saying around your own wellness. And so Karen, I'll start with you. You know, what do you do in your life that makes you feel most like you? I love that question. The thing that makes me feel most like me is when I take the time to talk to the people. I'm a very social being by this by nature. So although I, I love being by myself, for me, the thing that makes me feel most like me is when I am in that kind of wrap back and forth with the people I truly trust and care about. So, you know, that could be my mom who, you know, unfortunately right now has stage four cancer and is in Canada, and I haven't been able to, to see her. So I feel most like me when we're spending that time every day. I mean, we spend at least 30 minutes every day on FaceTime. And I say, gosh, you know, how could I not, not be with you 24 hours a day face to face? But it doesn't matter. So that's, that's what makes me feel most like me is kind of coming back to my roots, my, you know, my, my, my husband, my kids, just getting into those moments where you're really noticing I'm right here in the right now. You know, this is filling up my tank on the asset side of my balance sheet so that when I've got to deal with my liabilities, I'm, you know, I'm okay. My tank, my tank is filled up. So it's all those social interactions that really fill my soul. I love that. Um, Jen, what about you? Yeah. So my personal well-being philosophy is eat, move, sleep, and find joy. Um, and so I, try to do that and do that well each day. As we've discussed, it looks different each day, but you know, some version of having some nutritious food, that doesn't mean that I don't indulge in non-nutritious food. I certainly do. 
when the time is right, uh, getting in some movement, whether that is, you know, a full on workout or just making sure that I'm, you know, getting away from my desk and out from behind my laptop a couple times a day, even if it's just for a few minutes, but moving my body. Sleep is critically important to me. I do not negotiate away my sleep for anything or anyone. <laughs> it is my number one well-being priority. And then finding joy um, and, and, and really finding joy in small moments throughout the day, because I think a lot of times we forget to look up and you know take note of, of the fact that there are still lots of great things going on and lots of ways to find joy in our life, even when things feel like they're completely out of control and not so great, you know, whether it's, you know, laughing at something silly my dog did or finding a funny video online. There's just many ways to, to make yourself laugh uh, in a day. And I just think that that's critically important. All right. Well, that is a perfect way to end. Thank you both so much for being here. I think that we can all learn so much from, from both of you in terms of your own personal wellness philosophy and how you're bringing this to your teams and to your organization. And I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you for having us. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to Left Door Own Devices. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. If you want to receive my monthly-ish update on all things human at work, or just want to say hello, email me at erica at ericakeswin.com. Stay safe, stay connected, and I'll see you soon.